Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 37, verses 1 and 2. And as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples saith unto him, Master, see what manner of stone and what buildings are here. And Jesus answering said unto him, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Burkett notes, Our blessed Savior, being now ready to depart from the temple, nevermore after this entering into it, and his disciples showing him with wonder and admiration the magnificent structures and buildings thereof, apprehending that in regard of its invincible strength it could not be destroyed, or that at least in regard of its incredible magnificence it was a great pity it should be destroyed. Then say to Christ, Master, behold what buildings are here, not considering how sin will undermine and blow up the most famous structures. Sin brings cities and kingdoms, as well as particular persons, to their end. Not one stone of this magnificent structure, says Christ, shall remain unpulled down, which threatening was exactly fulfilled after Christ's death, when Titus, the Roman emperor, destroyed the city, burnt the temple, and Turnus Rufus, the general of his army, plowed up the very foundation on which the temple stood. Thus was the threatening of God fulfilled, Jeremiah 26.11. Zion shall be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become a heap. Learn hence, one, that sin has laid the foundation of ruin in the most flourishing cities and kingdoms. Two, that the threatenings of God are to be feared, and shall be fulfilled whatever appearing improbabilities there may be to the contrary. It is neither the temple's strength nor beauty that can oppose or withstand God's power. Verses 3 and 4. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when these things shall be, and what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? Burkett notes, a double question is here propounded to our Savior by his disciples, namely, when the destruction of Jerusalem shall be, and what shall be the signs of that destruction. See here what an itching curiosity there is in the best of men to know futurities, to know things that shall come to pass hereafter, and when that hereafter is to come to pass. Oh, how happy were we if as forward to obey the declarations of God's revealed will as we are to pry into the hidden counsel of his secret will. Tell us, say the disciples, when shall these things be? Verses 5 through 10. And Jesus, answering them, began to say, Take heed, lest any man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And when ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, be ye not troubled. For such things must needs be. But the end shall not be yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be earthquakes in diverse places, and there shall be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. But take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to the councils. And in the synagogues ye shall be beaten, and ye shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. And the gospel must first be published among all nations. Burkett notes, Here and in the following verses, our Savior gives his disciples the signs which should forerun the destruction of Jerusalem. The first of which was this, that there should arise false Christs, false prophets, and seducers, 
such as Theodas and others under the name and person of the Messiah, some affirming themselves to be Christ's personal or the promised Messiah, others to be Christ's doctrinal, affirming their erroneous opinions to be the mind and doctrine of Jesus Christ. Learn, hence, that as there will be many seducers before the end of the world, for Jerusalem's destruction was a type and emblem of the world's destruction, and many will be seduced and misled by them, so it is the duty of Christ's own disciples to take heed, lest they, being also led away by the error of the wicked, do fall from their own steadfastness. Take heed, says Christ, that no man deceive you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and will deceive many. The second sign of Jerusalem's destruction was wars and rumors of wars, that is, civil broils and intestine commotions among themselves, as also famine and earthquakes. Whence note that war and fire, earthquakes and famine, are judgments and calamities inflicted by God upon a sinful people for their contempt of Christ and gospel grace. Two, that although these be very terrible judgments and desolating calamities, yet to an incorrigible and irreclaimable people are they the forerunners of worse judgments. These are, says Christ, the beginnings of sorrows. The third sign of this approaching destruction was a general persecution of the ministers of the gospel for preaching the doctrine of the gospel to a lost world. He shall be beaten and brought before kings for my sake, for a testimony. From whence note that the preaching of the gospel, wherever it comes, will be for a testimony to them to whom it comes, either a testimony for them or against them. To the humble, it's a testimony for. To despisers and scorners, it is a testimony against. If the dust of the minister's feet bear witness against the despisers of the gospel, their sermons much more. The word of God, delivered in the scriptures and dispensed in the ministry thereof, hath its diverse and contrary effects upon different and contrary subjects, from both which yet Almighty God knows how to raise his own glory. To the humble and teachable, the gospel is in agitorium. To scorners and despisers, it will be in testimonium. To some, the Savior of life unto life. To others, the Savior of death unto death. Verses 11 through 13. But when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what ye shall speak, neither do ye premeditate. But whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak ye. For it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. Now the brother shall betray the brother to death, and the father the son. And the children shall rise up against their parents, and shall cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Burkett notes, Here our Savior acquaints his disciples that for preaching the gospel they should be brought before kings and rulers, but advises them, when they should be so brought, not to be anxiously thoughtful and solicitous what they should say, for it should be suggested to them by the Holy Ghost what to say in that hour. Note here that this promise seems to be particular to the apostles, and that it belonged to them only when they were brought before kings and rulers to plead the cause of Christ. Learn hence that though the truth of Christ may be opposed, yet the defenders of it shall never be ashamed. For rather than they shall want a tongue to plead for it, God himself will prompt them by his Holy Spirit, and suggest such arguments to them as all their enemies shall not be able to gainsay. Observe farther, 
how our Savior describes the bitter enmity of the world against the preachers of the gospel. To be such as would overcome and extinguish even the natural affections of the dearest relations, one towards another. The brother shall betray the brother to death. Grace teaches us to lay down our lives for the brethren, but corruption in general, and enmity to the gospel in particular, teaches brother to take away the life of brother. The brother shall betray the brother to death. Observe lastly how our Savior comforts his disciples that there would be an end of these sharp and bitter sufferings, assuring them that if their faith and patience did hold out unto the end, they should be saved. This is our comfort. Our suffering for Christ must be sharp, but they should be short. If our sufferings for Christ end not in our lifetimes, they will end with our lives. Verse 14. But when you shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let him that readeth understand. Burkett notes, the sense is, when ye shall see the Roman army, which is an abomination to you, and an occasion of great desolation wherever it goes, when you shall see that abominable desolating army regretting the city of Jerusalem in order to her ruin and being laid waste, then call to mind the prophecy of Daniel, which primarily respected Antiochus, but secondarily Titus the Roman emperor and shall now be fully completed, for the siege shall not be raised till both city and temple be raised to the ground. From whence learn, one, that God has instruments ready at his call to lay waste the strongest cities, and to ruin the most flourishing kingdoms which do to reject his son and refuse the tenders of his grace. Two, that God can, and sometimes doth, make use of those very persons whom sinners most abhor, and to be the instruments of their punishment and the occasion of their destruction. The Roman army, which was an abomination to the Jews, did God destroy them by. Verses 14 through 18. Then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains. Let he that is on the rooftop not go down into the house, neither enter therein, to take anything out of his house. And let him that is in the field not turn back again for to take up his garment. But woe to them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. And pray ye that your flight be not in the winter. Burkett notes, The meaning is, As soon as ye shall see the Roman army appear before the city of Jerusalem, let everyone that values his own safety fly, as far and as fast as he can, as Lot fled from the flames of Sodom, and be glad if by flight he can save his life, though he lose goods and clothes and all things besides. Whence learn that when Almighty God is pouring forth his fury upon a sinful people, it is both lawful and a necessary duty by flight to endeavor to shelter and secure ourselves from the approaching calamity and desolation. When you see Jerusalem encompassed with armies, flee to the mountains. 2. That in case of flight before an enraged enemy and bloody army, if we lose all that we have and our lives be given us for a prey, we fare well, and the Lord deals very graciously and mercifully with us. Next, our Savior declares the doleful distress of those that could not flee from the Roman army, encompassing Jerusalem, as women, great with child, and others giving suck, who by that means are like to lose their lives, and adds farther that it would increase the calamity if their flight should happen to be in the winter, or as St. Matthew adds, on the Sabbath day, Matthew twenty four twenty. Pray that your flight be not in the winter, nor on the Sabbath day. Flight in the winter is sad, because we can fly then neither fast nor far, 
and on the Sabbath day, it's very sorrowful, that being the day of our spiritual labor and our bodily rest. Learn hence that it is a great addition to the trouble and disquiet of a good man's spirit when the day of his spiritual rest is interrupted, and instead of enjoying communion with God in his house, he is driven from house and home. Verses 19 and 20. For in those days shall be affliction, such as was not from the beginning of creation which God created unto this time, neither shall be. And except that the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he hath chosen, he hath shortened the days. Burkett notes, The dreadful calamities which were coming upon the Jews in general, and Jerusalem in particular, and here foretold by our blessed Savior, partly from the Roman army without, and partly from the seditions and factions of the zealots within, who committed such outrages and slaughters that there were no less than a 100,000 Jews slain and 97,000 taken prisoner. They that bought our Savior for 30 pence were now themselves sold 34 a penny. Now did the temple itself become a sacrifice, a whole burnt offering, and was consumed to ashes. Yet observe, Christ promises that those days of vengeance should be foreshortened for the elect's sake. God had a remnant which he had designed should survive that destruction, to be a holy seed, and accordingly the province of God so ordered it, that the city was taken in six months and the whole country depopulated in eighteen. From whence observe how the Lord intermixes some mercy with the extremest misery that doth befall a people for their sins on this side of hell. No sinner can say in this life that they feel the strokes of justice to the utmost, or that they have judgment without mercy. Verses 21 through 23. And then, if any man shall say to you, Lo, here is Christ, or Lo, he is there, believe him not. For false Christs and false prophets shall rise, and shall show signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. But take ye heed, Behold, I have foretold you all things. Burkett notes, The Jews had all along cherished in themselves a vain expectation that the promised Messiah should be a temporal deliverer and set them at liberty from the power and slavery of the Romans. And accordingly, our Savior declares to his disciples here that immediately before Jerusalem's destruction, several persons, taking advantage of this expectation, would make themselves heads of party and pretend that they were the true Messiah who should save and deliver them from their enemies if they would follow them. Hereupon our Savior cautions his disciples against false Christs and false prophets and bids them not to believe them, though they did never so many great signs and wonders and promised them never such glorious deliverances. From hence note 1 that the church's great danger is from seducers that come in Christ's name and pretend to work signs and wonders by his authority. Note, too, that such is the power of seduction and delusion that many in all ages of the church have been carried away with seducers and false teachers. Three, that the elect themselves, if left to themselves, might be seduced, but being guarded by divine power against seduction and delusion, they shall be preserved from that fatal mischief. They shall seduce, if possible, even the elect. Verses 24 through 27. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun shall be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars of heaven shall fall, and the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken. And then they shall all see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he shall send his angels 
and shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from the uppermost parts of the earth to the uppermost part of heaven. Burkett notes, Our Savior goes on in figurative expressions to set forth the calamities that should befall the Jewish nation immediately after Jerusalem's destruction. The sun shall be darkened. That is, all their glory and excellency shall be eclipsed. All their wealth and prosperity shall be laid waste. Their whole government, civil and ecclesiastical, destroyed. And such marks of miseries found upon them as never was seen upon a people. Those that apply this to the general judgment understand the words literally, that the sun and moon will then have their influences suspended, that the holy angels will be sent forth to gather the elect from all quarters of the world with the sound of a trumpet, says St. Matthew. Probably, as there was an audible sound of a trumpet at the giving of the law, so there shall be the like sound of a trumpet when Christ shall summon the world to judgment for transgressing of that law. A joyful sound will this be to the friends of Christ, a doleful, dreadful sound to the ears of his enemies. Verses 28-32 to Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When her branch is yet tender, and putteth forth leaves, ye know the summer is near. So ye, in like manner, when ye shall see these things come to pass, know that it is nigh, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. But of that day and that hour knoweth no man. No, not the angels which are in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father. Burkett notes, Here our blessed Savior declares two things with reference to his coming. One, the certainty of the thing itself. Two, the uncertainty of the time. The certainty of this coming he sets forth by the similitude of the fig tree, which, beginning to bud, declares the summer at hand. Thus our Savior tells them that when they should see the forementioned signs, they might conclude the destruction of their city and temple to be near at hand. And accordingly, some then living did see their predictions fulfilled. Observe, too, the uncertainty as to the precise time when this judgment should come. No angel in heaven nor creature upon earth could determine the time. Only the glorious persons in the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Learn hence that all things are not revealed to the angels themselves, but such things only as it concerns them to know, and the wisdom of God thinks fit to reveal. Two, that the precise time of the day of judgment is kept by God as a secret to himself. We are not to know the hour, to the intent we may be on our watch every hour. Christ himself did not know it as a man, but as God only. The knowledge and revelation of this was no part of Christ's prophetic office, it being one of those times and seasons which the Father has put in his own power. Acts 1.7 Consider Christ as God, or the second person in the Trinity, and to affirm that there is anything which he does not know is blasphemy. But to consider him as the Messiah, and to say that there were some things which Christ as such did not know, is no blasphemy. For though Christ as God was equal with the Father, yet as Messiah, or God-man, he was inferior to the Father, his servant or messenger, and could do nothing of himself, and did not know all things. Verses 33-37 Take ye heed, watch and pray, for you know not when the time is. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, who left his house and gave authority to his servants, and to every man his work, and commanded the porter to watch. 
Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh, at even, or at midnight, or at the cock crowing, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all. Watch. Burkett notes, Our blessed Savior takes occasion from the foregoing doctrine of the certainty and suddenness of his coming to judgment to enforce the duty of diligent and industrious watchfulness upon all his disciples and followers. That is, to be upon their guard against all that sin and to be in actual readiness for his appearance and approach. Learn hence that it is the indisputable duty and ought to be the indefatigable endeavor of every Christian to stand upon his guard in a prepared readiness for Christ's appearance both for his coming to them and for their going to him. There is a twofold readiness for Christ's coming, namely, habitual and actual. And habitual readiness is a readiness of the state and condition. Actual readiness is the readiness of the person. When we are furnished with all the graces and virtue of a good life, and when our lamps are burning and our loins are girded, our souls furnished with all the graces of God's Holy Spirit, our lives fruitful in good work, Blessed is that servant who, when the Lord cometh, shall be found thus watching.